Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. There in Romans 5, 1, Paul has rooted um, the believer's assurance in the truth that God has reconciled us. And because we've been justified, we're forgiven, we're accepted as righteous, and therefore we have objective, legal peace with God. It's not something we're trying to gain a feeling about. We really and truly have peace with God because God has justified us in Christ. And then, as Paul continues that train of thought, he now says in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, One would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there are those experiences that we have all had in life where we see something, usually for the first time, and it is so much greater than we anticipated and so much more wonderful we are overwhelmed by what we have seen. I had one of these experiences last year. I saw for the first time in my life um, some baby sea turtles hatch on Edisto Beach, actually two nights in a row. Having grown up on an island and never seen that, it was astonishing to be able to witness baby sea turtles hatching. And what is so marvelous about this experience is that as you stand there over the sand wondering if you're going to see anything and just waiting and waiting and waiting, suddenly you start to see this tiny little baby sea turtle fin wiggling and you're like, oh, one's coming. And then he's fighting to get out and then another one comes and he's pushing him out of the way and you're like, this is awesome. And then they're all fighting to get out and then one pops out and then another one pops out and then several more come out and then you wait And then a bunch start coming out, and then hundreds come out, and you're like, what in the world? And as we watch that, I remember all of the kids standing by saying, wait a minute, there's more. There's more. Wait, there's more. And they just kept coming. And in some weird sense, the gospel is just like that. You may see the truth of the gospel, and you may come to understand some part of the truth of justification by faith alone, that blessing of the gospel. And and we oftentimes think, I've seen the really great thing. And then the Apostle Paul comes along, and he says, wait a minute, there's more. There's, There's more. There's always more. In fact, in this passage, you'll notice that he actually says three times, there's more. He says more than that. And then he says, much more. And then he says, how much more? Paul is intent on giving us the more of the gospel. He wants to take us 
to see the full glories of what Christ has done. And in order to do that, Paul spends a great deal of time in this letter unpacking all of the nuances and all of the sides of justification. Now, he has already done that for us by telling us uh, what justification is back in chapter 3, 21 through 26. He has then rooted it back in the Old Testament and the example of Abraham in chapter 4. And then as we noted last week here in chapter 5, he wants us to see the implications, the, the benefit of justification, the assurance that we have peace with God now through our Lord Jesus. And if that was not enough, Paul wants to wake us all up to what is the really great much more of the gospel this morning. And as we consider this, we look at verses 6 through 11 together, I want us to consider just two things. First, I want us to consider the greatness of the demonstration of God's love in the gospel. And then I want us to consider the greatness of the measure of God's love in the gospel, the greatness of the demonstration and the greatness of the measure of God's love in the gospel. We'll notice there in verse 6 that the apostle now connects everything he's about to say to what he has just said with that little preposition for. Now, if you were here last week, you would remember that what Paul ended on was that in the gospel, we have joy because of the peace that we have with God, and we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and we can even rejoice in our afflictions because, Paul explains, that the afflictions believers experience make them long for the glory that God has secured for them already in Christ, and that necessarily increases their hope and their longing for that. Paul is not saying that Christians want afflictions, that they delight in them, or that they're bothered less by them than unbelievers. He's not saying that. He's saying we can rejoice in affliction, in the time of affliction, because ultimately it brings us to a greater hope in the gospel and a longing to be with Christ in glory. And now Paul is explaining, still in connection to that, another aspect of that dimension of hope. Um, If we could throw one big word, and the word love is very pronounced in this section, but if we could throw one big word over this, it would be the word hope. You'll see toward the end of this that Paul's intention is to explain to believers that if God reconciled us when we were enemies, how much more is he not going to save us? If If he shed his blood for us in Christ to justify us when we were ungodly. How much more is he not going to save us from wrath? He he is giving us the prospect of the hope of believers. Now, before we look in detail at the demonstration of God's love, let me just note this. This is the first time in this letter that Paul has mentioned the love of God. Um, I, I meditated on that this week. Quite often, it almost seems strange that Paul wouldn't bring the idea of God's love to bear all the way until chapter 5. But I think he does that because he has wanted to impress on us what we are by nature under the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, all of us deserving his wrath 
none of us, no matter who we are, having any, any right to eternal life, having any way to eternal life, and then the provision that he's made and what that provision is in Christ, that righteousness that Jesus establishes. But now, when he comes to this section where he wants to set out the much more of the gospel, he, he does something marvelous. He wants us to understand the greatness of the demonstration of God's love for us when we were his enemies. Now, I want us to look at this here in verses uh, 6 through 8, the greatness of the demonstration. Notice Paul says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Um, And then look over in verse 8, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones has very helpfully said Romans 5, 6. Um, this demonstration of God's love. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates. He shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lloyd-Jones says that, that this is the Apostles Paul's exposition of John three sixteen. He is, he is expounding that in more detail, in more careful nuance, and he's saying... If you really want to understand the greatness of God's love in providing Christ and the righteousness and the life that he has provided in Christ, then you have to understand several things. Number one, you have to understand the objects of that love. You have to understand the timing of that love, and you have to understand the act of that love. The demonstration of this love is, is, is seen in its greatness by the objects of those love. I noted Uh, not long ago to you, that Paul uses four terms to describe what we are by nature. Notice there in verse 6, he says, while we were still weak, every one of us bruised and broken by the fall. Every one of us weak. You know, when I meet Christians that act like they're not weak, I usually think there's something seriously wrong with that person. Because every one of us, Paul says, by nature are defined as being weak. And, and later on, he'll, he'll use the word helpless. Um, if you think about the healing miracles of the Lord Jesus, the only people that ever came to Christ were people that felt their weakness and helplessness. People that thought they were well never came to Jesus. Um, you might think of the blind beggars. They are outside of Jericho and Bartimaeus especially, and he sat there and he was begging and he heard that Jesus was coming and he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd told him to be quiet. They said, he doesn't need weak people coming to him. He doesn't need helpless people. And and what did Bartimaeus do? He cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. And he called him to him and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive your sight. And Jesus did so much more for Bartimaeus than just give him his sight. Jesus gave him salvation. Um, You think of the paralytic whose friends let him down through the rooftop into the presence of Jesus to be healed by him. And, And that's a picture of what we are by nature, absolutely helpless unable to bring ourselves... By the way, the theological term behind this is the inability of man. That that what Paul is saying in this is that we were unable to help ourselves. There is nothing we could do. We could not even bring ourselves to Christ. 
um, when we were weak, when we were helpless. And then notice there at the end of verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, this really ought to astonish us. Um, After the fall of Adam, our Lord Jesus being accepted, God only sets his love on ungodly people. I want you to think about that. After Adam and the fall of Adam, the Lord Jesus accepted, God only sets his love on the ungodly. Paul has told us this back in chapter 4, verse 5, that God justifies the ungodly. Now, what should be remarkable about that and what should show us the greatness of the demonstration of God's love to us is that back in chapter 1, verse 18, the apostle says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But here he says the love of God is demonstrated in what he does for the ungodly, for the same people. That, that's all of us by nature. And that, that means that I'm not trying to merit God's love. I'm not trying to manipulate God to love me. I'm not trying to bring anything to him so that he will love me. Rather, he decided in the councils of eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit decided, I will set my love on these people. I will send my Son to die for these people. Not because of anything they've done. I love that quote by Gerhardus Voss. The greatest way to know that God will never stop loving us as believers is to know that he never started. From all eternity, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And listen very carefully because this is very important. The apostle doesn't just say while we were helpless and weak, while we were ungodly. He then says in verse 8, while we were still sinners. Well, sin is our offenses against him. It is our violations of his law. You know, our society rages when they hear the word sin because they know that it means that we're accountable to a God who gives all men life and breath and all things and that when we transgress his holiness and his commandments that we are by nature now sinners. We are, in the words of R.C. Sproul, we, are, we have committed cosmic treason against the God of heaven. And, and that puts us in his disfavor by nature and yet... He demonstrates his love for us while we were yet sinners. He didn't wait for us to stop sinning to demonstrate his love. And then notice this. Paul goes to the height height of what we were as the objects now of God's love. Notice verse 10. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now, Paul is not saying, if you feel like you hate God. There have been many atheists who say, I not only reject God, I hate him. He's not saying, if you feel that enmity, he's talking about a legal standing that we all have by nature. By nature, our legal standing is that we are enemies of God. And yet, he decided, I am going to love them, and I'm going to show them how I have loved them. I'm going to demonstrate my great eternal love for people who are weak, ungodly, sinful, and enemies. Now, that is awesome. 
Um, that is awesome. Um, that's, that's the greatness of God's love for us when we were in that condition. Now, there are a lot of misconceptions here, and many Christians have struggled with assurance of salvation. They're like children. I've heard this said many times. We're all like children saying, he loved me or she loved me. He loves me not. She loves me not. Hoping that maybe we get to a place where we can say, he loves me. Um, And that's not the way the Christian life should work. Um, There are many Christians who think that God the Father has to love us because the Son is there twisting his arm saying, look what I did, look what I did for them, now will you please love them and accept them. That is not what Scripture teaches. In fact, Scripture teaches that the death of Jesus is the manifestation of the love of God, not the cause of the love of God. Don't miss that. John Murray, the great theologian, I've been quoting him a lot to you. Listen to this. It is not as though the death of Christ constrains the love of God. It is not as though the death of Christ constrains the love of God, but the love of God constrains even unto the death of Christ. Essentially what Paul is saying here is when God wanted you to know the greatness of his love, he said, I am going to give my infinitely beloved son. I'm going to give him up for you who don't deserve salvation. I'm going to show you how much I love you. This led, by the way, Charles Spurgeon to say something along these lines. Whenever I think of the death of Christ on the cross and the father giving up his son, it seems to me at times that it's almost as if he loves me more than he loves his own son. That's what that should make you feel like. That he would give up the infinitely holy, eternal, divine son who is fully God and he would sacrifice himself as a demonstration of how much God loves you. So if I want to know if God loves me, I don't look at my circumstances. That's what Paul is saying here. What happens when the afflictions come, when the trials come, when the difficulties come? And I'm left asking, does God love me or is this God out to destroy me? Paul says, you don't look at those circumstances. You don't even look at the affliction. You look at the cross. And as Augustine so famously put it, the cross was his pulpit. The message was love. How do I know that God loves me? I look at the cross. Um, I had something happen to me as a new believer. I can't remember what it is now. I was probably 25 years old, and I was with several friends, and one of my best friends said, man, the Lord must really love you. Something good had happened. It was probably Anna. I think it was Anna. The Lord must really love you. And, and uh, one of my mentors, a missionary we support, Mike Cuneo, said, well, that's not how you know that the Lord loves you. You know it because he gave Christ for you. That's what Paul's saying. He brings us to the very place to say, this is how you know. You know, unbelievers say they believe that God is love, but not a single unbeliever believes that God is love because not a single unbeliever trusts in Jesus as the demonstration in the act of God's demonstration of his love. You see, that's the only way to know it. I love the way Bernard of Clairvaux puts it in that hymn, the love of Jesus, none but his loved ones know. Only those who have been loved by him 
can love him. Paul is not saying here that God loves us. He's saying because we love him, he's saying he loves us. Therefore, we know that he loves us and we love him in return. Now, there is the time of this great demonstration of God's love. Notice there in verse 6 again, while we were still weak at the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, there have been pages and pages and pages written by theologians trying to explain what does Paul mean by the right time? Does he mean when we were in that state of depravity, when we were weak, when we were helpless, when we were ungodly, when we were sinful, when we were enemies? He may have that in mind. Others have said this is uh, that time when the gospel would go to the nations, the Roman roads were paved, everything could be carried out in God's timing and, and in the fulfillment of his purposes now in the new covenant era. And I think what Paul is simply saying there is that it's the fullness of time, the fullness of redemptive history. This was just the right time for Christ to come into the world. He demonstrated his love at the perfect time, at the fullness of time, Paul will say. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the curse of the law. And yet God determined that at that time, to those people, he would demonstrate his love. Uh, There was never a demonstration of God's love like the death of Jesus on the cross. Nothing even compared to it. All the acts of love that God showed Israel in the Old Covenant, none of them compared. The giving of the manna, the serpent on the pole, the dividing of the Red Sea, all of God's provisions, all of those demonstrations of love were nothing compared to the demonstration of his love when the eternal son would die on the cross. And so we've seen the objects and we've seen the time. I want us to consider the act itself, the great act in this demonstration. Notice that there are several times that uh, Paul explains what happens at the cross by saying this, Christ died for us. Now, that little preposition, it carries with it the entire theology of substitution. It is, it is a word that carries uh, the idea of in the place of, not just for, to benefit in some way, but he substituted himself. The whole point of the gospel is that God substitutes himself for sinners. I want to say that again. God substituted himself for sinners. Um, While the eternal son knows everything because he's omniscient, There is a sense in which when he hung on the cross and fell under the wrath of God for your sin and my sin, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he was essentially trying to understand the depths of what he was doing on the cross. There are depths. This is what led Augustine to cry out, I I see the depths, but I cannot find the bottom. There are depths. When you look at the cross, Um, Augustine was reflecting on the fact that 
that thief next to Jesus believed right then and there that Christ had substituted himself even for that thief. Isn't that marvelous? The thief was dying the death he deserved to die and Jesus was dying the death that he would, would have otherwise died for all eternity. Substituting himself. There are depths here. Giving himself for his people. By the way, there are many, many pastors and theologians that will try to convince you of some alternate theory of what happened on the cross. Don't listen to them for one second. Far from any misconception about what what is happening, God was demonstrating just how great his love for sinners is. And I don't know about you, but our hearts that are oftentimes so condemned by the guilt of our sin and our consciences that gnawed us, this is the medicine. If, if, if I told you this morning, if you, if you are more disciplined, more rigorous in this and that, if you, if you date your wife once a week, if you do these things, everything will get better. I'm essentially, I don't know where I heard this, but I'm essentially sending you to a pharmacy that has no medicine. You are to love your wife, and wives to love their husbands. We are to be self-controlled and disciplined, but that is not the place where our consciences come to know the peace that God has already made. It's at the cross. It's at the cross. That's the balm of Gilead. That's the place of healing streams that break forth for guilty souls. Because if I don't go there, I will have to live with the burden of the guilt of all that I've done wrong. But if I come to the foot of the cross and I see the sun dying for me, how can I not understand that God has loved me, though I am totally undeserving and totally unable to bring myself to a place of trusting in him, and yet our hearts are quieted when we see the Lord Jesus dying for us when we were like that. Now, that's all great. You hear that from me almost every week. But what I love about what Paul is about to do is he's going to take you from there and he's going to say, look, there's more. There's more. I want us to consider now, secondly, the measure of the greatness of God's love Now, Paul does something throughout this chapter. He sets up an argument from the greater to the lesser, and then from the lesser to the greater. You might miss that. He goes from uh, the greater to the lesser. He says, when we were ungodly, Christ died for us. And then he says, if you want to understand the measure of the greatness of God's love there, think about this. Scarcely for a righteous man would somebody die. Paul's already said there are no righteous people, so he's talking... Just He's talking hypotheticals, and he's talking on the human level. Scarcely for a righteous person would somebody die. Maybe for a good person, somebody would dare to die. Maybe in battle or in some other extreme situation. And so he goes from the greater to the lesser, and he says, look, this is greater than that. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he goes from the lesser to the greater. And this is marvelous. Notice this. Notice verse 10. I'm sorry. Notice verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more 
shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, you hear me preach about the wrath of God almost every week. I know it's wildly unpopular. I don't care. It's true. And you hear that, and you hear me tell you that Jesus took that wrath, that we are justified, and that we are not under the condemnation of God. And all of that is true. But we also know, those of us that know and believe the truth, that there is a day of judgment coming when that wrath is going to be poured out. And it's going to be manifest on everyone who is not in Christ by faith. And that is a terrifying thought. There will still be a demonstration of God's wrath on the day of judgment. That is a guarantee. The the Old Testament prophets spoke of it. They spoke of it under the figure of the cup of God's wrath that he would make his people drink to the full. Jesus and the apostles constantly warned about the wrath to come. The whole New Testament is full of warnings about that. And yet for believers, there is no wrath. There is no prospect of wrath. There should be no fear of the wrath to come. None. In fact, Paul is going to great lengths to explain the justification, how we're accepted by God in Christ by faith alone, is the opposite of condemnation. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. That's why he can say in Romans 8.1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we're justified. And notice what he does. He says, from the lesser to the greater, if when we were enemies, God reconciled us. If we had nothing to show ourselves acceptable in any way or attractive or or anything before him, if, if then he reconciled us by the blood of Jesus, how much more is he not going to save us from the wrath to come? Um, the Apostle Paul is this great way of explaining this, a parallel passage in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, where he says that, that the Thessalonians and us, if we were converted, that you turned to God from idols to trust in Jesus who saves us and delivers us from the wrath to come. That's a glorious thought. Um, Paul wants your minds and your hearts to see the much more of this. If he did it then, when you were like that, will he not do what you may fear the most, knowing what you deserve by nature? And then Paul does it again. Notice this, notice verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I think Paul has here the resurrection life of Christ, that he appears in the presence of God for us. If, if, if his death was what reconciled us, his life is the guarantee that he will save us. I love that hymn, Jesus lives and so shall I. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death no longer reigns forever. Death is now my entrance into glory because Jesus lives How much more, if he did that when we were enemies, now that we're reconciled, his representative life is the guarantee that he is going to save his people. I'm not, I'm at a loss to help you understand how astonishing what Paul is saying here is. Um, You know, Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, and I want you to listen very carefully. 
says we don't measure the greatness of God's love by our capacity to experience it. We don't measure the greatness of God's love by our capacity to experience it. He says we grow in our capacity to experience God's love by understanding the greatness of it. That's what Paul's saying here. I don't come to experience, to, to understand how great God's love is because I feel very close to him, my communion's strong. I grow in those ways because I get the greatness of it and I'm astonished by it. Now, if, if this morning you're not astonished by this, you're not moved by this, or you hate this, I want to tell you this is, this is everything. This is everything. There is nothing greater than this. In fact, I, I, I want to argue, I was meditating on this this week, and I actually think Romans 5, 6 through 11 is the greatest thing written in Scripture, even greater than back in chapter 3, 21 through 26. This is it. This is where our souls have to come back to to understand the greatness. Now, here's the marvelous thing. If, if I gave you something, if I gave away half of my money, I would have a depleted account that's already depleted. That would not be fun for me, and I wouldn't have much more to give you. The glory of what Paul is saying here about God's love is that when God gave his son out of love for us when we didn't deserve it, he lost nothing. He can now, as Paul will say in chapter 8, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? Do you see that? He lost nothing when he demonstrated his love in giving up Christ for us, and, and we gain the greatest confidence that he will supply every other need we have until we pass through that great day of judgment and enter into that eternal life and the resurrection hope on the last day. Um, notice there's one more, much more, there in verse 11. Notice that. More than that, and... It's almost incredible that Paul says that much more, much more. Now, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, this, is, this is meant to be the place where you ground your confidence. When you go to pray, you go to God believing these things because they are true. When you don't feel them the way you want to feel them, you don't focus on your feelings and what's going on inside. You fix your eyes on where God has demonstrated that great love for us, and you meditate on the great measure of that love through the much mores of what he is going to do. In a moment, we're going to come to the table There are three ways that we can come to the table this morning. We can come complacently, not really caring, just going through the motions. We can come ritualistically thinking that, that this is just going to do what it's supposed to do on its own. Or we can come meditating on these truths and saying, I want to sit at the foot of the cross and I want to focus on the greatness of the demonstration of God's love for me when I was an enemy, sinful, 
when I was helpless and I was hopeless. And I want to meditate on the much more of the measurement of the love of God in the broken bread and the poured out wine that show forth what Christ did for sinners like us. That's the only way I want to come to the table. And I hope that's how you want to come this morning. And I hope that as you listen to these things, you really will meditate on them, that you'll process them, that you'll turn them over in your mind, and that you'll believe them. I want to say this this morning. If you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus, this is it. I've got nothing better to give you than this. And if you don't trust him, you will never know his love. You will only know his wrath. Heaven will be a world of love. It will be God in all of his love. Jonathan Edwards called it that. Heaven is a world of love. And hell is a world of God in all his wrath. He will be present there in just wrath and retribution. But God has done everything to redeem, reconcile, rescue, and protect his people. All because of his free and unmerited love. And he wants you, he wants you to believe that. And you believe that by responding and trusting in the Lord Jesus. I hope that we will all put our trust in him this morning as we meditate on these things. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we so desperately need to hear these things. Our hearts are often weighed down with our own sin, our failures. Um, The fact that we are um, so weak in how we come to you in our prayers, in our Christian life. Lord, we come acknowledging those things and we come acknowledging that when we were without strength in due time, you demonstrated your love by giving your son for us. We thank you and praise you for the everlasting gospel. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would draw every single man and woman and boy and girl in this place this morning into the loving arms of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would make them hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth and live. And we pray, our Father, as we come to the table this morning, that you would sit us at the foot of the cross, that you would make us to see the greatness of your love demonstrated in the death of Christ, and that you would make us to understand the measure, the greatness of the measure of that love in the security that we have in the age to come. And so would you do these things for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.